You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. I might pull for a bit of order, so, uh, yep. <laughs> uh, today's reading is from uh, John 13, uh, verses 31 to 38, and you can uh, either see it from your pew Bible or follow on the screen, or the Connect card. Uh, when he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Thanks, Rob. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Oops. You feeding back a little. Uh, my name's Aaron. If uh, there's anyone here who I haven't met before, uh, if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after church. Uh, come and say good day. Um, if I haven't met you, you might not know. I've got a, a vision impairment, uh, which means I might not be able to spot you across the room. So please be bold and, and come up and say hi if you're new to DPC. Uh, it's great to look at this passage this afternoon. Uh, please have your Bibles open. There's a little outline of my sermon on the welcome card that Mari mentioned earlier. Uh, let's ask for God's help as we look at his word. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, please um, please do uh, speak through your word to us this afternoon. May we hear your voice. Uh, please take me up and use me in my weakness by the power of your spirit. Uh, please, in particular, by your spirit, show us your glorious love in the cross of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, Mari kind of flagged a, a big question for today. Uh, I wonder where you look to see what God is like. Where do you look to see what God is like? Uh, if you believe in the Christian God, which I know uh, many, if not most of you here do, uh, you also believe that that God is invisible, God is spirit. So where do you look to see what he is like? Uh, the Bible's answer to that question is that if you want to know what God is like, you must look to his glory. Right? It's God's glory. It's by his glory that God shows us what he's like. In the Bible, God's glory is how he reveals himself to us. It's how he shows himself to us. Uh, one writer, a guy named Christopher Ash, a British kind of writer, uh, if you don't know who he is, then really doesn't matter. Uh, but he does helpfully define God's glory, uh, which is uh, the outward kind of shining forth of God's inward being. The outward shining forth of God's inward being, making visible the God who is invisible. 
You know, why do I talk about God's glory and how he shows himself to us, how he reveals himself to us? Well, because it's a key idea in today's passage from John's Gospel and indeed in John's Gospel as a whole. Uh, so if you take a look at the first two verses there, verses 31 and 32, uh, Judas, if you missed last week, he's just left the Passover meal that Jesus is sharing with his uh, now 11 apostles. Uh, Jesus says to the 11 who were remaining in verse 31, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Now, without any kind of knowledge of the Bible at all, I reckon you could look at verses 31 and 32 and tell me what the key word of those verses is. It's just kind of right in your face by the fact that Jesus repeats it five times in two verses. It's the word glory or glorified or glorify. It's obviously something that's really on Jesus' mind. And notice the start of verse 31. Jesus says, now. And at the end of verse 32, he says, at once. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, at this point in John's gospel, right now, immediately, he is on the cusp of showing us God's glory in a kind of new and fresh and completely kind of comprehensive way. He's going to show the world what God is like. And this is really the moment we've been building towards in John's gospel. So if you want to flick back to John chapter 1, verse 14, if you've got your Bible open, and you're a reasonably quick flicker, you could flick back to John chapter 1, verse 14. John started his gospel by saying, The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is right at the start of John's gospel, and he's saying, my gospel, the good news that I want to tell you about, is about how God has shown us his glory in Jesus, his one and only son. That's right at the heart of what John wants to tell us. And then in John chapters 1 to 12, which is sometimes called the book of signs, that part of his gospel, uh, we get glimpses of Jesus' glory in the miraculous signs that he performs. So if you flick back to John chapter 1, why don't you turn uh, to John chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, Jesus has just turned water into wine at a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And in John 2, verse 11, John says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs uh, uh, through which Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding, John says that gives us a glimpse of Jesus' glory. Likewise, in John chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is sick. And in John chapter 11, verse 4, he says this to his disciples. This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So in John chapters 1 to 12, what do we get? We get glimpses of God's glory seen in Jesus through his miraculous signs. But at the end of John chapter 12, it's really clear that a more full revelation of God's glory is coming. So if you haven't flicked to the other Bible verses, I encourage you to flick to John chapter 12, verse 23. John chapter 12, 
verse 23. Uh, if you're not familiar with flicking around the Bible, uh, the big numbers are the chapters. I'm not saying this to be patronising. The small numbers are the verses. So John chapter 12, uh, verse 23, just in case you're not used to flicking around the Bible. Uh, in verse 23, Jesus says uh, that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus has spoken about his hour. It's not necessarily a specific chronological hour, but it's the hour of uh, a a specific moment in time, uh, an appointed moment that his Father has uh, has given him. Uh, This is the hour that Jesus is going to be glorified. Notice in verse 24, though, how is Jesus going to be glorified? Well, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So Jesus says, uh, the time has come for me to be glorified. And then all of a sudden he starts talking about his death. He is this kernel of wheat who, he says, must fall to the ground and die uh, to produce life for many. So clearly Jesus' glory and his suffering and death are connected. So given that Jesus is expecting that his death is imminent, he's troubled. If you scan down to verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. What, this hour of suffering and death? No, Jesus says. It is for this hour, uh, it is for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see the word glory again. Right, Jesus, God's son, he's troubled by what lies ahead, his hour of suffering and death, but he also knows that it's through his suffering and death that he's going to glorify his father's name. Uh, in the Bible, God's name uh, is the kind of representative of his character, his power, his beauty, his majesty. It's kind of the sum total of who he is. So watch Jesus say. He's saying, through my suffering and death, I'm going to show the world my father's glory. I'm going to show the world what my father is like. Uh, so in verse 28, the father has something to say about that. Notice verse 28, the voice of God the Father comes from heaven saying, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. He's saying, through your life and ministry so far, Jesus, my son, I've already begun to show the world my glory, what I am like. But there's more glory to come. I will glorify my name again. And in verses 30 to 33, Jesus tells us how that glory will be seen. Notice from verse 30, Jesus said, This voice uh, from heaven uh, was for your benefit, not for mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. So where do you look to see what God is like? John's answer is that you have to look at God's glory. That's how God shows himself to us. In particular, God's glory shown to us in Jesus, his one and only son. 
And in particular, uh, God's glory seen in Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. Jesus lifted up from the earth to draw all people to himself. So with that kind of big context from John's Gospel in mind, uh, my big idea for the passage we're looking at today is that God's glory is seen in his cross-shaped love for us. Uh, That we who have experienced God's cross-shaped love might show his glory to the world as we love one another with cross-shaped love. God's glory is seen in his cross-shaped love for us, so we must show God's glory to the world as we love one another with cross-shaped love. That's my kind of summary. So to take a look in verses 31 and 32, uh, we've looked at these verses a little already, but we'll just draw a couple of other things uh, out of these verses where uh, we see that God's glory is seen in his cross-shaped love for us. Uh, That's in Jesus' uh, suffering and death in our place on the cross. Uh, And that's why Jesus refers to himself uh, in verse 31 as the Son of Man. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, you might be thinking, why does Jesus talk about himself in this way? Maybe it's a less familiar title. Well, it's because in the Old Testament, the title of the Son of Man has two different aspects. On the one hand, it's a glorious title. Uh, So you can write down uh, or type on your device Daniel chapter 7. You can read that later on. In Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is a figure of immense glory. He's given an eternal kingdom over people from every nation. So Jesus knows that the Son of Man is a glorious figure. And yet the Son of Man is also a suffering figure. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses this title, the Son of Man, to remind us of a character in Isaiah chapters 40 to 55, known as the Suffering Servant. It's a figure who was to lead God's people and show God's love and glory to the world through his rejection and suffering and death. So you see, Jesus is really clear on who he is and how he is going to show the world God's glory. He will show people God's glory through his suffering and death, through being lifted up on the cross. He is the Son of Man who shows God's glory in his suffering. So when Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified, he's saying that now that Judas has left this meal, everything is in place for me to be betrayed Unjustly condemned, crucified, glorified, showing the world what God is like. Remember, God's glory is the outward shining forth of God's inward being. It's revealing to the world what God is like. What is God like in his inward being, at his core, at his essence? God is love. The Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, uh, later on would write a letter uh, to some early uh, Christians in the early church, and in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, he says, God is love. So for God, uh, love isn't just something that he does. Love is a part of who God is. That's what John's saying when he says God is love. It's part of his inward being. It's core to who he is. It's essential to him because the Christian God is not like the Islamic God, you know, a solitary God by himself who sort of becomes loving when he loves other people. The Christian God is Father, Son and Spirit. 
Three persons in one who for all eternity have loved one another in humble and selfless love. That's God's glory. God is love. And that's what we that's the kind of love that we see at the cross. When Jesus, God's one and only Son, pours himself out on the cross in our place for our sins in humble and selfless love. Humble and selfless love for a world, as we've seen throughout John's gospel so far, that has largely rejected him. Likewise, God the Father giving up Jesus, his one and only Son, pouring himself out in humble and selfless love for a world who has rejected him and has now rejected his Son, and yet they still keep pursuing us in love. This is God's glory that we see at the cross. So in verse 32, Jesus says, if God, that's God the Father, is glorified in him, uh, God will glorify the Son in himself uh, and will glorify him at once. You see how the glory of Jesus God's Son and the glory of God his Father are intimately connected. It's as the Son is glorified that the Father is glorified. And as the Father is glorified, the Son will be glorified. And all of this happens at the cross because it's at the cross where they put on display their humble, selfless love, not just for the world, but for one another. As the Son humbly trusts the will of his Father and gives his life on the cross. And the Father humbly looks after his Son, assuring him of his great love for him. And that after he dies, he will raise him up to be with him. This is God's glory that we see at the cross. Where do you look to see what God is like? John says, look to God's glory, God's glory seen in Jesus, his son. In Jesus, his son, suffering and dying for you on the cross. God's glory is seen in his cross-shaped love for us. That's verses 31 and 32. Uh, Second, in verses 33 and 34, we see that uh, so we, if you're a Christian who's experienced God's love for you in Jesus' death on the cross, uh, we must show God's glory to the world by loving one another with cross-shaped love. Uh, In verse 33, Jesus starts to prepare his disciples uh, for when he's going to leave this world after his death. So he says to his disciples, my children, my children. That's nice, isn't it? Um, It gives us a little insight into how Jesus feels about his disciples. Uh, They're pretty annoying, right? If you read the Gospels, they're not the sharpest tools in the shed. They are quite slow like we are at times. They disown Jesus. They fall asleep on Jesus. They betray Jesus. And yet Jesus loves them with real delight and affection. As a father might love his kids, a mum might love her kids. Dear children, he says. What does he want his children to know? Uh, Well, he says, I'll be with you only for a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus knows it's time for him to leave this world and return to his father in heaven. We saw that back in chapter 13, verse 3, earlier in this chapter. So Jesus knows that's going to happen, and he knows that that is a journey via his suffering and death on the cross to back to his Father's presence. That's a journey that none of his disciples can take with him right now. 
So when Jesus leaves his disciples, how does he want them to relate to one another, to support one another, to look out for one another? Well, verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Notice Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. I think he's saying love one another in the same character or way or the same manner that I have loved you. Love one another, you could say, with cross-shaped love in a way that's put on display at the cross. And notice verse 35, Jesus says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So it's as we uh, love one another, as a community of disciples who know the love of Jesus, uh, that we show ourselves to be disciples of Jesus. We show the world that we actually belong to Jesus. And we give the world a, a display of God's glory, a taste of what God is like. Now, if you want to chat later on about why Jesus says this is a new command, given that God commanded his people in the Old Testament to love him and love others. What's with that? Uh, We can talk about that later on. For now, just notice uh, that I'm saying that we must, because Jesus commands us, we must uh, show God's glory to the world by loving one another with cross-shaped love. A third, the last uh, three verses of the passage, verses 36 to 38, we see that God shows this wonderful cross-shaped love even to those who disown him. Uh, In verses 33 to 35, uh, Jesus has kind of started talking about the fact that he's going to leave, then he's trying to switch in verses 33 to 35 to how his disciples should love one another when he leaves. Uh, But in verse 36, it's pretty clear that Peter and the rest of the disciples are still stuck on the fact that Jesus is leaving. And that's fair enough. Like These guys have left everything to follow Jesus. And now Jesus is talking about leaving them. That's a bit of a gut punch. So in verse 36, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replies, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. must have been deeply troubling for the disciples to hear Jesus say, hey, you you can't come with me now. You can't follow me on this journey that I'm taking. But also comforting because they can come later. There's hope to be with Jesus in the future. As Jesus reassures his disciples in a few verses' time, uh, Pete will talk about this next week. In John 14, verses 1 to 3, he says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. Uh, If that were not so, I wouldn't have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. This is the heart of God throughout the whole Bible, isn't it? When God creates a garden for Adam and Eve to dwell in, where does God want to be? He wants to be where they are. When God uh, renews some, when, when God brings his people into the promised land, where does he want to be? He wants to be where they are. When they're walking through the wilderness, where does he want to be? He wants to be where they are, in a tent, among them, in the wilderness. 
when God takes on flesh in Jesus, what's that a sign of? It's a sign of the fact that God wants to be with his people. When God makes people new in Christ and fills them with the power of his spirit, what's that saying? It's that God wants to be with his people. He loves us. He hates being separate from us. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He wants to be with his disciples. He doesn't want to leave them any more than they want him to leave them. But he knows that for the moment he does have to leave them. And that's a real grief to all the disciples. As usual, it's Peter who speaks on their behalf in verse 37. He says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And with this talk of laying down his life for Jesus, it seems that Peter's onto something. He knows that suffering and potentially death lies ahead for Jesus. But he does still have a little bit of a wonky idea of what it means for Jesus to be God's king, the Messiah. You see, Peter would have thought that Jesus was going to show his power and glory as God's king through military power and might. He would engage in a fierce battle, perhaps dying in the process, but he would eventually overthrow the oppressive Roman authorities. And Peter's declaring to Jesus right here, when that battle breaks out, Jesus, I'm going to be there right by your side. I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm no coward. But in verse 38, Jesus says, will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. You see, in the uh, safety of this upper room in Jerusalem, uh, with a a nice full stomach after a, a Passover meal and not really understanding the suffering that lies ahead for Jesus, in, in the midst of all of that, Peter is full of good intentions, bold declarations. I'll always be faithful to you, Jesus. I'll never deny you. I'll never betray you. I'll never disown you. But Jesus knows better. And he knows better than we do when we do that too. I do this all the time. You know, I feel encouraged after attending church or a conference or a camp. And I'm just full of, you know, bold declarations about how I'm going to be so faithful to Jesus. In fact, Jesus, you're kind of lucky to have me, you know. But Jesus knows better, just as with Peter here. He knows the fickleness of my heart. He knows that in the coming darkness, I'm going to turn away from him and deny him and be a coward. He knows all that. He knows that about Peter. I said, this is what's most important. What's most important is not Peter's willingness to lay down his life for Jesus, but Jesus' willingness in his great love to lay down his life for Peter. Even though he knows, clearly he knows here, before time, that that Peter is going to disown him. Three times. And yet Jesus still lays down his life for Peter. Through Jesus' death on the cross, God shows his incredible cross-shaped love even to people like us. People who frequently disown him. So where do you look to see what God is like? Let me say it again. John says you look to God's glory, God's glory in the person of Jesus, his son, and in particular in Jesus, his son, lifted up on the cross. 
because God's glory is seen in his cross-shaped love even for people like us who are frequently like Peter, disowning Jesus. But when you experience God's cross-shaped love like that, you're called, Jesus says, to show that love to the world as we love one another, excuse me, uh, as we love one another as disciples of Jesus. So I want to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about what that might look like for us to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Uh, I want to suggest five kind of broad characteristics of how Jesus has loved us. Uh, The first is that Jesus has loved us with affectionate love. Uh, Sometimes in Christian circles, I don't know if it's said so much beyond that, uh, but in Christian circles it used to be said quite a bit that love is a verb. And I think what people will say, well, love is all about what you do, it's not about what you feel. And there's a certain truth in that, right? Like like love does have to be expressed in practical ways. I'll talk about that in a second. But Jesus' love for his disciples, his love for us, is not just about practically doing things. It's not just about duty, it's about delight. Sometimes people say, I don't just love you, I like you. Like, I really enjoy you. That's Jesus' heart towards us. My dear children, he has real affection for us. So Peter, who was exposed to all this teaching of Jesus that we're going to be unpacking in the coming weeks about how Christians should love one another, in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he says to the Christians, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply and from the heart. Now, I know this is really difficult if you're in a community of Jesus' disciples, and frankly, there's a bunch of people that you just don't like that much. And apart from being a part of the same church, you you could do without them, right? Like there are some people who just rub you up the wrong way. And here I am saying, not only do you have to kind of grit your teeth and do loving things to one another, but to love one another with real affection, deeply and from the heart, Now, what I'm not saying is, hey, this is something you've got to drum up with your own strength and willpower. Notice notice what Peter says. He says, now that you have purified yourselves uh, by the truth, the truth of the gospel, this is something supernatural that God does by the power of his word and his spirit in the hearts of Christians giving us new birth. Uh, So we ought to pray. Pray that God would continually be renewing our hearts by the power of his word and spirit that we might love one one another deeply and from the heart with real affection. A second, Jesus loved us with practical love. Uh, Jesus didn't just send us uh, a kind of uh, loving message on Messenger or WhatsApp. Hey guys, I love you. Nice to see how you're doing down there. Or he didn't kind of drop a new song on Spotify talking about his love for us. Like he did something really practical to meet our greatest need, giving his life for us on the cross. So our love, if we're to love one another as Jesus loved us, ought to be practical. As John again says in his letter, 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, he says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is, well, it can't be. 
So John says, dear children, let us love one another, uh, not just with words and speech, but with actions and in truth. Now, I think we do a pretty good job of this around DBC, so this is not a kind of big stick. I'm really encouraged by the practical ways in which people love one another. You know, meal trains and walks and stuff when people get COVID and all that sort of thing. But let me urge you all the more uh, that our love for one another should have this practical expression. Uh, Third, uh, Jesus loved us with humble love. Uh, Sometimes you might come across someone who seems to be busy loving and serving others, but actually it seems to be all about them when you get to know them a little bit more. All of their loving service of others is done with an underlying tone of look at me, look at me. I just want to say that that's not how Jesus loved us. In Jesus' great acts of love for us, he wasn't consumed with himself and his own interests and his own glory. He was consumed with us and our interests and the glory of his Father. But he loved us with a humble and selfless love. He was able to forget about himself and focus on others. This is the character of the love that we're to show one another, selfless love, humble love. A fourth, Jesus loved us with costly love. Now, I know it's a little bit uh, dangerous for me to talk about us loving one another with costly love, with sacrificial love. Uh, Dangerous because, hey, in the past couple of years we've been working through what does it look like for us to serve the Lord uh, sustainably but still sacrificially? What does it look like for us to encourage people that it's okay to say no and have a break from a period of serving? So all of that, I I know all of that's in the background. I'm definitely not saying that we have to keep sacrificing ourselves for others at the expense of having healthy boundaries of self-care. I'm not saying that. And yet... It's hard to get around the fact that the love that Jesus has shown us is costly. Like it cost him his life. And so it does seem appropriate that our love for one another would have this costly dimension to it. It's not inherently bad if loving a brother or sister in Christ costs you some time or some money or some energy some status perhaps, because you choose to stay connected to a brother and sister in Christ and that impacts your status, your reputation with other people. Jesus' love for us was costly. So we're called to love one another with costly love. Finally, Jesus loves us with transforming love. I reckon that mostly the definition of love in our culture... Uh, is that if you love me, you're to accept me as I am and to leave me as I am. Not expect me to change in any way. And there's a certain kind of gospel half-truth in that, isn't it? Because the gospel tells us uh, that God does, in his great love for us, accept us as we are. God doesn't say, go away and sort your life out and then you can come to me. He says, come to me in all your mess and brokenness and sin. Come as you are. I accept you as you are. Uh, But God loves us way too much to leave us as we are. God is committed in his love to changing us and transforming us and making us more and more like Jesus, his son. 
So if we're to love one another as Jesus has loved us, uh, we're called to play our part in God's change project. As we confess our sins to one another, admit our weaknesses to one another, remind one another of the grace of the gospel, as we correct one another, as we gently rebuke one another, as we encourage one another on in Christ, as we do all of these things, we're hoping and praying, I hope, that in love we're all being changed and transformed more and more into the glory of Jesus, God's Son. Because in Jesus, God has loved us with a transforming love. So where do you look to see what God is like? John says, don't look primarily to the creation. Although you can see God's power in creation, his majesty, his beauty, you you can see a bit of what God is like in creation, but don't look primarily at creation. And don't look primarily at Christians. Though sometimes you can get a glimpse of what God is like in Christians. It's a horribly imperfect glimpse. And sometimes it's just horrifically distorted. Don't look primarily to creation or to Christians. Look to the cross. God's glory is seen in his cross-shaped love for us. That we who have experienced his cross-shaped love might show his glory to the world as we love one another with cross-shaped love. Uh, Let me pray and then we'll sing. Uh, Gracious Father, we thank you uh, for this passage of your word. I pray that by the power of your spirit, uh, we're a little bit clearer on uh, where we might look to see what you are like. In particular, that you might show us your wonderful cross-shaped love uh, in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that as that wonderful love that you have shown us in Christ your Son, changes us and grips our hearts and minds all the more deeply, uh, that we would be moved to love one another with cross-shaped loved also, giving the world a taste of what you are like. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.